Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. I'm Dr. Carolyn Lam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. Current guidelines recommend measurement of one of the cardiac-specific isoforms of cardiac troponin complex. However, what's the utility of combining measurements of troponins I and T in the early diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction? Well, you have to wait for our upcoming feature discussion, but it's coming right up after these summaries. The first original paper this week sheds light on the genetic basis and mechanisms of bicuspid aortic valve, the most common congenital heart defect in the population. We know that bicuspid aortic valve is an autosomal dominant trait with variable expression and incomplete penetrance, suggestive of genetic and environmental modifiers. In the current study, first author Dr. Gary Bay, corresponding author Dr. Niemer from University of Ottawa, and authors of the Bicuspid Aortic Valve Consortium, assessed cardiac structure and function in mice lacking a GATA6 allele. They found that GATA6 heterozygous mice had a highly penetrant type of bicuspid aortic valve with right and left leaflet fusion, which is the most frequent type found in humans. GATA6 transcript levels were lower in human bicuspid aortic valve as compared to normal tricuspid valves. Mechanistically, GATA6 haploinsufficiency disrupted valve remodeling and extracellular matrix composition through dysregulation of important signaling molecules including matrix metalloproteinase 9. Cell-specific inactivation of GATA6 revealed an essential role for GATA6 in secondary heart field myocytes. Thus, this study identifies a new cellular and molecular mechanism underlying bicuspid aortic valve. In the field of cardiac regeneration, CKIT-positive adult progenitor cells were initially reported to produce new cardiomyocytes in the heart. However, more recent genetic evidence suggests that such events are exceedingly rare. Today's paper provides insights into this discrepancy, and it is from first author Dr. Malikin, corresponding author Dr. Molkenton, from Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. The authors took a novel approach of deleting the necessary cardiogenic transcription factors, GATA4 and GATA6, from CKIT-expressing cardiac progenitor cells to determine whether true de novo cardiomyocyte formation would occur. They found that deletion of the necessary cardiogenic transcription factors GATA4 and GATA6 from these CKIT-positive cardiac progenitor cells remarkably resulted in greater apparent cardiomyocyte derivation from these CKIT-positive cells. Deletion of GATA4 from CKIT-derived endothelial progenitors altered the integrity of the endothelial cell network in the heart resulting in greater CKIT-positive derived leukocytes entering the heart and fusing with cardiomyocytes. Thus, they demonstrated a new role for GATA4 in endothelial differentiation, specifically showing for the first time that GATA4 is essential for vascular development via the CKIT lineage. This study shows that leukocyte to cardiomyocyte fusion is the primary basis for past lineage tracing results incorrectly suggesting that CKIT-positive cardiac progenitor cells generated de novo cardiomyocytes in the heart. 
Lecithin cholesterol acyl transferase, or LCAT, is the sole enzyme that esterifies cholesterol in the plasma. Its role in the supposed protection from atherogenesis remains unclear because mutations in LCAT can cause more or less carotid atherosclerosis. Addressing this conundrum, co-first authors Dr. Aldoni and Baldessari, co-corresponding authors Dr. Cubenhoven from University Medical Center Groningen, Dr. Holaboom from Academic Medical Center Amsterdam, and Dr. Calabresi from University of Milano in Italy, hypothesized that genetic mutations causing complete LCAT deficiency versus partial LCAT deficiency would be differentially associated with carotid atherosclerosis in carriers of LCAT mutations. To study this, they looked at 74 heterozygotes for LCAT mutations who were recruited from Italy and the Netherlands and who were assigned to complete versus partial LCAT deficiency. These were also compared to 280 controls. Using carotid intima media thickness as a measure of atherosclerosis, the authors demonstrated that carriers of LCAT mutations leading to complete LCAT deficiency exhibited less carotid atherosclerosis, indicating a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. By contrast, however, carriers of LCAT mutations leading to partial LCAT deficiency showed marginally more atherosclerosis. The association of mutations in LCAT with subclinical atherosclerosis appeared to be related to the capacity of LCAT to esterify cholesterol on ApoB-containing lipoproteins since the abnormal LCAT present in the partial deficiency was only active on this class of lipoproteins. These important findings bear relevance for pharmaceutical strategies that target LCAT. After bioprosthesis aortic valve replacement, what is the incidence, correlates, and outcomes of hemodynamic valve deterioration? First author, Dr. Saloon, corresponding author, Dr. Pibaro from Quebec Heart and Lung Institute, and their colleagues studied 1,387 patients who underwent bioprosthetic aortic valve replacement and found that hemodynamic valve deterioration identified by Doppler echocardiography occurred in one-third of patients and was associated with a 2.2-fold higher adjusted mortality. Diabetes and renal insufficiency were associated with early hemodynamic valve deterioration, whereas female sex warfarin use and stented bioprosthetic valves versus the stentless ones were associated with late hemodynamic valve deterioration. These findings suggest that following bioprosthetic valve replacement, a systematic echocardiographic follow-up may be considered to ensure adequate detection and quantitation of hemodynamic valve deterioration. And that wraps up our summaries this week. Now for our feature discussion. We all recognize the critical role that cardiac troponins play for the early diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction. We also know that there are different isoforms of cardiac troponins, the cardiac troponin T and I's. Now, have we ever considered combining the two, and how does that help the early diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction? Well, I am delighted to have with us a corresponding author of our feature paper today, Dr. Christian Muller from University Hospital Basel in Switzerland, a 
very familiar voice on this podcast. Welcome, Christian, and thank you so much for publishing yet another wonderful paper with us. Thank you very much for highlighting this important work and allowing me to comment on it in the podcast. Christian, first of all, could you paint the background to help us understand what's the difference between the two isoforms? I mean, in terms of a diurnal variation, the way that they may be released earlier or later, the way they may or may not be impacted by comorbidities like renal dysfunction or hemolysis. Could you help us understand why there may be rationale to combine the two in looking at their impact on the diagnosis of acute myocardial The measurement of cardiac troponin as a structural protein unique to the heart clear uh, is a central piece in our early diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction. So both for the early rule out in patients who present with chest pain and are finally found to have more benign disease as well as the early rule in. And in general, I think it's important to highlight that There are two isoforms, exactly as you have mentioned. So there's cardiac troponin T and cardiac troponin I. So these two proteins are cardiac specific and are used in the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction. Now, with the development of high sensitivity methods for measurements of both cardiac troponin T and cardiac troponin I concentrations, we have been able to get a little bit of a better understanding of, in fact, differences in the pathophysiology as well as analytical details between cardiac troponin T and I. Before I start highlighting the differences, I think it's important. I mean, both signals show a very strong correlation. So still, they are very, very similar to each other. However, the small differences that have begun to emerge kind of allowed to suggest that possible we could use them together as two pieces of information in the diagnosis. So what are the differences? First, exactly as you have highlighted, there is in fact a diurnal rhythm with cardiac troponin T, which means that cardiac troponin T concentrations are higher in the morning hours as compared to the evening. We still have no clue why that's the case, but it's a relevant difference, about 25%, and it uh, it has been shown in two cohorts, and a group from uh, Maastricht was the first one highlighting this. This rhythm has not been found for cardiac troponin I. The second difference is that, again, poorly understood in many, many population studies, cardiac troponin T concentrations are even stronger predictors of death as compared to cardiac troponin I concentration. Then the third difference, it seems then if we measure it with high sensitivity assays, for example, high sensitivity I seems to rise or be released from injured cardiomyocytes even slightly earlier as compared to T and possibly even less injuries necessary to release I as compared to T. Then you mentioned renal function, uh, cardiac troponin T concentration shows slightly higher correlation with renal function as compared to I. And also other pre-analytical issues like hemolysis seems to affect T and I concentration in a different way. So a lot of small, tiny differences that have emerged and that uh, underlie the hypothesis that possibly by combining the two signals, we could be even more accurate in the diagnosis rather than relying on one on its own. 
That's great. That really sets out the rationale very well. And I think in and of itself is a learning lesson because I think most clinicians sort of take the two equivalently. So could you tell us what you found? I would like to, of course, thank the fantastic team that has allowed us to generate this data. It's a collaboration between the APACE investigators, the ADAPT investigators, and experts in clinical chemistry from Maastricht University, and Noreen van der Linden and Karin Wildia, the first office. So we used two large diagnostic studies, APACE and ADAPT, and we measured high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T and I in both of them and compared their diagnostic performance as compared to the final adjudicated diagnosis by two independent cardiologists who, of course, had the null information, cardiac imaging, and uh, whatever you need to adjudicate. So what we found is that in general, if you look at diagnostic accuracy overall as quantified by the area under the curve, Combining the two signals did not consistently increase overall diagnostic accuracy as compared to the individual isoforms. However, we were able to document some improvement for the rule-out, for the very early rule-out of acute myocardial infarction. So the concept that is extremely attractive, of course, from a medical as well as from an economic perspective is to rule out the presence of acute myocardial infarction with a single blood draw. So we can do this if we assess the ECG. The ECG doesn't show relevant changes. And then if the troponin concentration, if measured with a high sensitivity assay, is very low, then the likelihood that the presence would have an acute myocardial infarction, again, is extremely low or in scientific terms, so the negative predictive value approaches 99 to 100%. And by combining very low concentration for high sensitivity T and very low concentration for I, we were able to increase the efficacy of the early rule out. And that seemed to be the most likely or a possible uh, clinical utility of combining the two signals. Even the so-called neutral findings are very important. It's an important question to ask, an important answer to get. But could you give us an idea for the rule out part? How much do we gain? How much exactly do we gain by using both assays instead of just one? So the efficacy of the early rule-out depends to some extent on the assay used and the cutoff applied. So the current ESC algorithm uses cutoffs that have been shown to be very safe. However, they are, regarding their efficacy, not very high. So the current ESC recommended cutoffs uh, and approach allows the rule out only in about perhaps 10 or 15 percent of patients. And that number can be significantly increased, likely doubled or perhaps even uh, increased threefold by using the combination approach. So this has been consistently shown both in the derivation and the validation cohort. Yeah. And do you think this is ready for prime time? I noticed a very balanced discussion actually calling for future studies, but perhaps you could state it better now. The main limitation regarding prime time is the fact that currently manufacturers either offer a high-sensitivity TSA or offer a high-sensitivity I method, which means that the vast majority of hospitals at this point in time do only have one method available. And it would require quite substantial investment in both 
hardware as well as changing of the logistics in the lab to implement measurement of both assays. So I think it's likely feasible, but it would be associated with relevant investment from a hospital perspective. In addition, I mean, also the rule-out approaches that use only one assay. Also, there are studies ongoing and trying to further increase the efficacy of the single marker approaches. So I think it's the best dual marker strategy that we were able to come up with recently because many of the other biomarkers that we had tested really didn't work out. But still, as you mentioned, I think it's also important to be very, very honest that uh, it will be difficult to implement tomorrow in most institutions. Yeah, and perhaps a little bit more work needs to be done to sort of first identify perhaps special situations where these may be particularly helpful. I suppose, like you just said, when we're thinking of the ESC sort of zero one hour type algorithms, who knows, maybe we should be having that extra insurance of the second test in those that tested negative in the first or something like that. Do you plan further work? I always ask you because you're always in the forefront of these things and we just love publishing your work. We have several additional analysis ongoing. And again, I think the main part is for just to go back from a, from a clinical perspective. So I think for many hospitals that are using T at the moment, it's important to have I available for certain situations. So for example, if you have a patient in whom you have evidence of chronic skeletal muscle disease, most of these disorders are rare, but some of them have been shown to be associated with increases in cardiac troponin T that do not seem to be related for cardiac diseases, but from skeletal muscle. This is rare, but if you have a patient with that kind of history, then the dual marker measurement is, I think, mandatory. The same applies to ISO. That there are other reasons to have false positive results for ISO. Whenever you are, if your hospital is using I, you should have the T method also available because once in a while you will identify patients in whom you have an eye result that doesn't really match the clinical setting and then it's so easy and often so helpful to get the T result to decide on the most appropriate measurement of patients. For which patients are kind of a, a standard that measures T and I would be justified? I think that's something to tease out in future study. I think that, that the rationale is there. And likely it will depend also on kind of which T or which I method we might use in the future. So at the moment we have one method for high sensitivity T, but there are several other methods in development and kind of applying for FDA approval for high sensitivity I. And possibly the combination with these might be even more beneficial regarding the single measurements, and, and I think that has to be teased out in future studies. Exactly, but what great insights for us to consider as clinicians now for specific cases where we may consider trying both if we have those in our institutions. And at the end of the day, I suppose a cost-effectiveness analysis will need to be done. Agree? Absolutely, absolutely. The good thing about troponin, it's extremely inexpensive. So as compared to most of the new fancy biomarkers that are usually rather pricey, so troponin is a routine marker, it's inexpensive, it's therefore very likely that if we are able to document some clinical value, that also the cost-effectiveness studies that definitely are necessary will show also some economic benefit. 
Oh, Christian, thank you for publishing yet another impactful and clinically relevant paper with us here in circulation. I mean, it's exactly the kinds of papers that we really treasure here because they directly inform clinicians and open our eyes to actually things that we should be considering in our everyday practice. Could I ask you, maybe Chikui, to share about your experience with publishing at Circulation? Someone like you would be the best person to tell the world. What's it like? Oh, of course. I mean, for us as a research group and for me as a researcher, it's fantastic. It's perfect to have our work published in circulation that has fantastic impact factor, fantastic readership and uh, ensures that the research gets the attention. That's fantastic. And also, I think for us as a research group, the recognition of being able to publish in circulation is outstanding and helps us continuing the research work that we do. The comments made to a large extent also by the editors also on this manuscript, I think, were incredibly insightful and definitely had a major contribution to the final product and to make it as attractive and also as balanced and insightful, uh, I think, as it is at this point in time. Thank you so much for providing that feedback because it is our aim, explicit aim, to sort of partner authors in getting the best of the manuscript and working really closely with you. So thank you once again, Christian, for your time today. And audience, I know you've heard many times from this favorite person that we have on our podcast. Do share this podcast with all your colleagues and don't forget to tune in again next week. 